Welcome to another edition of Innova Health Chat from Innova Health System. I'm your host, Jen Siciliano. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe at innova.org backslash health chat or find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today we're talking about an incredible new approach to treating a deadly condition called cardiogenic shock, which happens in about one out of every 10 heart attacks. Nationwide, only about half of the people who develop this complication have survived, and it's been that way for decades. A new treatment approach at Inova Heart and Vascular Institute has pushed the survival rate past 70%. Joining us today is Dr. Benham Tarani, Medical Director of Cardiac Catheterization at the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute's Fairfax Medical Campus and a member of Inova's Cardiogenic Shock Team. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I think it's quite appropriate that February is American Heart Month. Heart disease is the leading cause of death for men and women in the U.S., and it's the perfect time to discuss um, heart issues and things folks don't know about uh, the heart and some of the things that can happen. So tell me a little bit about cardiogenic shock. I don't think that's something that everybody hears on a daily basis. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Cardiogenic shock is essentially a state of... um, it's essentially an end state in which the heart uh, is not able to pump enough blood to the rest of the body. And it can happen uh, in the setting of a heart attack when the patient comes in in the throes of their illness, typically due to a blockage um, in one of the arteries of the heart that supplies blood flow to the muscle. And despite our ability to provide better blood flow by opening up the blockage with balloon and stents, a significant portion of the heart muscle is at risk, is at jeopardy. And as such, the body is not able to receive the amount of oxygenation uh, in the form of blood. It can also happen in patients that have severe end-stage congestive heart failure, people that may have had congestive heart failure for a prolonged period of time. Um, but despite being on good medications, um, their, their heart has now reached a point where the end organs really are um, at risk and they're not able to receive blood flow. And at, it's at this time uh, when the patient's body really is going down what we've called for almost 20 years now, um, a proverbial death spiral in which mm-hmm. um, the heart's inability to provide enough blood f- uh, supply results in um, the organs, the liver, Uh, the kidneys, the brain, to be starved for oxygen. As a result, the uh, blood vessels in the body start to clamp down to help raise the blood pressure in response to the lack of blood flow. Patients are oftentimes cold, they're clammy, um, their lactic acid levels go up, which is a marker of poor blood flow, and then they start to go down this very quick uh, cycle of end organ failure. Um, and these patients really are um, in a time-dependent state. They really need uh, the help of all the uh, medical professionals that we have to offer um, to really get them to a better point. Wow. So, you know, how common is it? Right. And, and is there a certain age group that's more at risk than others? Or sure. who's at risk? If you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So um, uh, if we look at patients that come into our emergency rooms, uh, whether it's at Fairfax Medical Campus or any of our uh, other emergency rooms, including our health plexes, you, um, you would say that one out of 10 patients that are coming in with a heart attack will develop this condition. Um, and that's a number that's been pretty steady now for uh, more than 20 years. 
Now, um, we typically say that um, a heart attack will usually happen in men at around a median age, around 65, and women 72. But we're starting to see people in, the, in their 40s, 50s, and sometimes even as uh, in their 30s wow. uh, coming in with heart attacks. Uh, and that can be due to uh, genetics. Uh, family history is obviously important. It can be due to risk factors, uh, diabetes, if it hasn't been diagnosed or if it's poorly controlled, smoking, blood pressure, and cholesterol. So these patients are coming to the emergency room. Uh, they will get an EKG within 10 minutes. Uh, they will go to the cardiac catheterization lab in which um, through a small two millimeter puncture of the wrist, we can go into the heart, find the blockage. Usually there's a clot in there and we're able to pass a wire and balloon it. And the majority of times patients will do very well. They'll, um, they will leave the cardiac cath lab, they'll go to our cardiac intensive care unit, or now often go to a step-down unit, a progressive coronary care unit, and they'll go home in 48 hours. But 10% of patients, unfortunately, will be in the state of cardiogenic shock in which there are multiple medicines, uh, what we call uh, vasopressors, IV medicines to artificially raise the blood pressure. They may be on the breathing machine. Um, and so they need a lot of support. And these are the kinds of patients that unless we're able to get the heart the support that it needs within a matter of hours, not days or weeks, they can end up on dialysis due to kidney injury. Um, their liver can start to shut down uh, and they start to go into this very uh, uh, quick spiral of end organ failure. So that's the difference between just a regular heart attack and then this cardiogenic shock on top of it is it affects so much more in the body. Exactly. So this so this um, umbrella term of uh, acute coronary syndrome covers all of these patients. But then there is this particular subset with shock um, that when, when they've looked at these patients in, um, in multiple registries in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere, survival in this particular subset of patients is significantly lower than those that will come in with what we've typically called more garden variety acute coronary syndromes. Wow, wow. So the national survival rate for a long time was stuck around 50%. Um, despite all the modern advances in cardiac medicine, why is it so difficult to treat? Absolutely. So uh, up until the late 90s, uh, survival was actually up to, I'm, I'm sorry, mortality was as, was about 80%. Mm -hmm. uh, and that started with the initial papers that was put out by Dr. Killip and Kimball. And they came up with this concept of a coronary care unit. And that was really the kind of the bedrock for how we took care of patients with heart attacks. Mm -hmm. They were in a monitored unit, and um, they uh, they were uh, they were followed very closely. They received medicines to look out for any sort of heart rhythm issues afterwards. Then, in the late '90s, there was a uh, really a seminal trial called the Shock Trial uh, that was put out by Dr. Judith Hockman and NYU and colleagues that showed that by opening up arteries, we can improve uh, survival from 20% to about 50%. But since 1999, which is not that long ago, <laughs> until now, we've been stuck in this paradigm of about 50, 55% survival. And I think um, part of it has to do with the fact that these patients, when they come into the hospital, um, they're, they, oftentimes they are, they are quickly recognized. They may go and to the cardiac cath lab and have the artery opened. But then afterwards, then they go to the cardiac intensive care unit. And then, um, the care can become fragmented uh, as the focus is on the heart. Uh, then the uh, 
then the uh, th then the attention can switch over to the other organ systems mm -hmm. as they may start to fail. And within a very short period of time, literally with a blink of an eye, uh, within hours, not days, once they go into this state of end organ failure, it becomes really hard uh, to salvage these patients. Once they're on dialysis, once they're on the breathing machine for a long period of time, once they, once they develop um, liver failure, the mortality goes up. In fact, there's been papers that have been shown that um, every uh, additional organ, in addition to the heart, that's at risk or it's been injured as a consequence of this mortality goes up. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important, and this is what we've done here at the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute, is developing a team, really a multidisciplinary team. That was going to be my next question because right. of, of what you said earlier about when, when you started talking about the multiple organs and, and you think about we have specialists that kind of take right. care of all of these different things and right. how how you how you do that. And, right. and it sounds like... Um, that it's a story of the heart, but it's also about a story of teamwork. So tell us a little bit about that approach. Absolutely. So uh, back in the end of 2015, um, SKY, which is the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention, one of our major societies under the American College of Cardiology, put out a nice paper that said, you know, um, we need to have a team-based approach to take care of these patients. You know, we have sepsis teams, trauma teams, stroke teams, mm -hmm. multiple teams of physicians that take care of patients in the hospital for a variety of conditions. Mm -hmm. And it's been shown, you know, with the surviving the sepsis campaign and with the traumas um, and with the trauma registries that we can improve care. But with shock, that hasn't been done. Um, we don't have um, we don't have a way to be able to provide these patients the around the clock care that's needed with all the different specialists involved uh, to really assess every uh, uh, every uh, granular element uh, of their care. And so they proposed developing this team, and it was really left up to the institutions that take care of these patients to determine who would be on that team. But they proposed having an interventional cardiologist, having an intensivist who was in the hospital taking care of them, a cardiac surgeon as well as advanced heart failure. And we're very fortunate at IHVI. We have all of those specialists and all those specialties. And you know, we've, and we've had them for a very long time. We do a lot of high level, uh, what, what I would call destination care here. People come to INOVA uh, for um, left ventricular assist devices, uh, for heart transplant, for lung transplant. And we're able to offer all those destination therapies. So for us, it was really a natural fit to take all of these people and all their specialties and all the great work that they do to really focus them around this one particular subset of patients to improve the care. And so we decided that um, similar to what we've done with other conditions in the hospital where we have 24-hour um, access lines, that when a patient comes to the hospital, whether it's in the emergency room, the cath lab, on the floor, even at our outlying hospitals, whether it's, it's an Inova hospital or um, one of the referring hospitals that we partner with, they will have access to this one telephone number that when they call cardiac access and they suspect that the patient's in shock, they will get all these specialists on the phone and we'll, and we'll literally discuss the case. It's collegial. It's very, um, it's very informative. We're always learning from each other. And within a short period of time, we'll have a plan. The patient will then be transferred usually to our cardiac intensive care unit, and then we will then reassess these patients in serial fashion. And so uh, the decision is made that we have to escalate care to what's called a mechanical circulatory support device, usually devices the size of a pencil, but sometimes bigger, that go through the leg or sometimes even under the collarbone into the heart. These docs are available. We're able to reassess the patient. And very quickly, we can start to decide, all right, where are we going to go down? Which pathway? Are we going down the pathway of aggressive support with the hope of recovery or aggressive support with the, with the knowledge and intention that we may need to start thinking about LVADs or heart transplant. Yeah. 
Wow, the true definition of teamwork, it sounds like. (laughs) All right, so take me through a patient journey. Say, I'm a patient that comes in, you get a call that a patient's in cardiogenic shock. What happens next? Absolutely. Tell me about the process. Absolutely. So um, as soon as a patient uh, comes into our emergency room, they will meet one of our emergency room physicians. Again, these docs are part of our team. Fabulous professionals that are really involved in the early triage of these patients. They will get an EKG within 10 minutes, much sooner than that. If they identify that the patient's having a heart attack, that patient will then be taken to our cardiac catheterization laboratories. And there they will meet a number of great professionals, cath lab technicians, nursing staff, and an interventional cardiologist who's on call. That physician will then, you know, usually through a, a, what I said was a, a two millimeter puncture on the wrist, mm-hmm. go into the heart, find a blockage, and then take care of that blockage with um, usually a balloon and a stent. Uh, sometimes it may not be due to a blockage. It may just be due to severe end-stage congestive heart failure. At that point, um, uh, the physician will then collaborate with all the members of the shock team and will decide what sort of support that patient may or may not need. One of the things that we've done in Inova Heart and Vascular Institute is we've taken a technology which is this rather uh, uh, simple, but it's been around for 50 years, but underutilized, called a, P, uh, called a pulmonary arterial catheter, mm-hmm. a catheter that can go either from the leg or the neck up into the uh, heart to measure the pressures, and we use that to give us a lot of important data. What's the filling pressure inside the heart? What's the cardiac output? And that numbers, those numbers are so helpful because it, 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 um, it allows you to make a decision in real time what device to put in. This catheter, this, this technology has been around for 50 years. But when you look at the registry data, it shows that even in the highest volume centers for shock, it's used less than 10% of the time. So something as simple as putting a catheter that can be done in five to 10 minutes, we've, we've incorporated that as part of our protocol. The patient will then go to the cardiac intensive care unit. The doctors there are, are, are really fantastic. We have a cardiologist and intensivist on call 24 seven. They will be involved in the care of this patient to the end. And you know, whether that's you know, recovery and ultimately going home or whether it's you know, um, if they need higher support, uh, either an LVAD or a transplant. But during that time, the shock team, it's a 24 hour service, will literally literally or figuratively be at the bedside of the patient and then they'll help to make decisions uh, going forward for what needs to be done. You mentioned um, data and obviously that's important in everything we do, but you've collected a lot of data about the effectiveness of this approach. So, and as I understand it, the results were pretty impressive. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found? Absolutely. So we showed um, that over the course of uh, two years, so we published our data at the uh, end of 2018, early 2019, and we showed that over a two-year period by um, taking these patients, putting them in a controlled environment in a cardiac intensive care unit with standardized protocols, um, looking at serial granular elements from, that the PA catheter provides, we were able to improve survival from a baseline of 20, in 2016, which was about 47%, up to 70%. And 47% still, you know, is around the median for what survival in the country is. Uh, and again, this wasn't um, through the creation of new technologies or the creation mm-hmm. of, you know, new devices, although we have a lot of fabulous technologies available, but it was through teamwork, it was through constant reassessment, and it was um, having a real protocol approach. Uh, we developed a uh, order sets within our EPIC order system for these patients, not just here at Fairfax, but in the emergency rooms and elsewhere. Uh, We've developed uh, uh, 
templated notes where a physician can follow the patient and know exactly what's going on and then reassess them. And in the intensive care unit, we have some of the best nurses. They're at the bedside. They're really involved in the care of these patients. Some of the best advocates that a patient can ask for when they come to, I know, the Heart and Vascular Institute. And then they work with this entire team. So this team consists of not only the doctors that I mentioned to you, bedside nurses, pharmacy, respiratory therapy, um, nutrition, physical therapy. It's really a team. Now, some members of the team may see the patient for five minutes. Some will spend a lot of time with the patient for days and weeks. But each person that uh, you know lays uh, lays a hand on the patient, that you know is involved in the care of the patient, really is a valuable team member that's helping to move the care forward. Well, you just answered my next question, which was why you think it's so effective. Obviously, that's part of it is everybody working hand in hand and, and doing that and standardization of care. Absolutely. All right. Talk a little bit about how Inova has really set the standard for treating this condition. Um, an editorial in the Journal of American College of Cardiology that ran with your article called this a validated model for others to follow. So how have other healthcare providers responded and has there been interest among your colleagues out there in setting similar teams elsewhere um, since your study came out? Right. This uh, this model for uh, care for this particular subset of patients has really taken off. Um, when you uh, go around the country and you go to health systems, very similar to us mm-hmm. in terms of size, in terms of geography, in terms of breadth of acuity of patients, uh, centers have looked at what we've done. And there's been a couple of other centers around the country who've taken on similar models. Henry Ford in Detroit. Uh, there's the University of Utah. Um, there's also Wellstar system down in Marietta and a number of other centers. They've implemented such an approach and they've shown that they can improve survival to about 70%. That's a significant improvement. That's uh, a 40 to 50% improvement in survival. Uh, this now has now under, uh, has been taken on by the American College of Cardiology, Society of Cardiovascular and Geography and Intervention. And it's shown that we have technologies that are available to us. If we use these technologies in the right fashion in a team-based approach using objective data, we can really make the most of these technologies and improve survival of these patients. That's fabulous. Are you still doing research or looking for ways to innovate and improve? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're um, currently looking at multiple areas of research, whether it's through access site in terms of um, how we get access to, uh, uh, to put devices in these patients. What I will say is that patients in shock are at the highest risk of bleeding. Uh, they're at this point, uh, their livers are severely congested. There are multiple blood thinners, and so they're high risk. So we're looking at access site. Uh, we've also been looking at uh, gender, uh, gender-based outcomes. So uh, for a long time, we've had literature in the uh, uh, in the heart failure realm that's shown that women perhaps may not do as well as men, and, and especially in this particular condition, whether it's uh, that they may present later. Uh, whether it's that, that their symptoms may not be as typical as at a man as, as such may not be recognized or perhaps at some molecular genetic level. And we're showing uh, that using our team-based approach, uh, perhaps we may be able to mitigate some of those differences that may exist. We're also looking at ways in terms of using uh, blood thinners in these patients, looking at registries and uh, you know uh, developing protocols showing perhaps using short-acting IV blood thinners in these patients to get them through their acute state and then switching over to the oral long-acting blood thinners. Perhaps that may help reduce bleeding and thus reduce mortality. Bleeding is a very strong uh, predictor of mortality in these patients, two to four times increased risk. Even if somebody has a bleeding event and does not get transfused in the setting of shock, 
their mortality is significantly higher. So we're looking at a number of different areas within this uh, within this uh, uh, disease processes care. Um, we're also looking at what's called hub and spoke models. So uh, a lot of institutions similar to us, we have a spoke. Uh, I'm sorry, we have a hub center uh, like Fairfax Medical mm -hmm. Campus that patients come to, and the multiple spoke hospitals that we partner with. And we're looking at develop. Uh, we're looking at seeing whether having this hub and spoke model can help to uh, improve outcomes in these patients. Sometimes they will go to um, uh, a long-standing ER or a hospital that may not have all the capabilities that somewhere like Fairfax or other large medical mm -hmm. centers have. And we want to see whether developing hub and spoke models that's sensitive to time and recognition may improve survival. That's great. Well, the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute is highly reputable. I think it's known around for for its reputation and the quality of its doctors and care. Why? What do you think it is about the place that lets innovation happen like this? Um, I think a lot of it um, has to do with our leadership. We really have uh, fantastic leadership, in the, especially in the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute, but obviously within the whole health system that uh, focuses on patient-centered outcomes, where uh, it's really about the patient. And, uh, you know, whether uh, the patient is coming in uh, in the throes of their illness or, or whether they may be coming in earlier in their disease state, we really address each patient individually, and we want to make sure that we're offering them uh, the best chance. So it's patient-centered, it's compassionate, uh, it's uh, team-based, and it's, and it's really goal-directed. And I will say at the end, it's also based on guidelines. We want to practice medicine that's uh, guideline-directed, that's based on scientific evidence, uh, because I think that's the way we're ultimately going to learn, and that's what generates uh, more questions, uh, more, uh, more, uh, more thought-provoking ideas that will then spur a clinical research, whether it's in the form of registries or randomized control trials. Which in the end helps a lot more people. Absolutely. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much thank for being you. here and joining us today, especially during Heart Month. We're talking about heart issues. Uh, to learn more about the world-class heart care available at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute, visit innovaheart.org or call 1-855-MYANOVA to find an Innova Heart and Vascular doctor. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.